Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our online event entitled After the Virus, Lessons from the Past for a Better Future. And this event, of course, is hosted by the LSE School of Public Policy. My name is Andres Velasco, and I'm the Dean of the School of Public Policy at the LSE. I am very, very pleased to be chairing this event today, and especially happy to be welcoming our two speakers and authors, Hilary Cooper and Simon Schretzer. Of course, the welcome is only virtual, um, not in person, but maybe someday sooner rather than later, we will be able to restart events like this one in person. Before I introduce the speakers, just a couple of announcements. This event is part of the LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative, a series of debates about the direction that the world might take after the crisis. And of course, we have a festival, um, the typical uh, annual LSE festival, which runs this year from Monday the 13th to Saturday the 18th of June. And the title of the festival is How Do We Get to the Post-COVID World? You can find out more about the festival at lsc.ac.uk forward slash festival. And for people using Twitter today, the hashtag is LSCPostCOVID. The event is being recorded and it will be made avail- available sorry, as a, po- as a podcast, uh, presuming that we uh, face no technical uh, difficulties. Here is uh, how we're going to uh, run the show today. We will invite both of our guests to make a brief presentation, about 10 minutes each. They will tell us about their book. They will tell us about the main messages and points uh, from the book. Then I will use my chair's privilege to ask them a couple of questions. We will have a fairly informal dialogue and then open it up to questions uh, from the floor. Please use the Q&A function in Zoom to post those questions. And uh, time permitting, I will try to get to all of them or ideally to as many as possible. So without further ado, let me introduce our speakers and I will do so in the order in which they will be presenting. Um, Simon Schretter is Professor of History and Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. Both he and Hilary are speaking from Cambridge right now. He does research on economic, social and public health history. His publications include Health and Wealth, which won a prize from the American Public Health Association, and another book called Sex Before the Sexual Revolution, which was long listed for the Samuel Johnson Prize. He is the co-founder and editor of the journal History and Policy. Hillary Cooper is a former government economist and senior policymaker with expertise in labor markets, children's services, and local development. Her current freelance work examines the challenges of aging. She was a joint winner of the 2019 IPPR Economics Prize for the essay, Incentivizing an Ethical Economics, written with Simon and with Ben Schretter as well. So um, let me just um, hand over the floor to our speakers. uh, Simon first, and then Hillary, and then um, we will take it from there. Simon, welcome to the LSE. Thanks for joining us. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Andres. A great pleasure to be here. 
Um, so in After the Virus, we are focused on what history can teach us, rather than on making comparisons between the UK and other countries in their handling of COVID, which we, you know, plenty of other publications are doing that. Our aim is to look back into Britain's history to help illuminate a strategy for the future as we face multiple challenges, every bit as testing as COVID-19 in the rest of this century. After the virus draws on history <clears throat> in two ways. Firstly, by looking at the history of the last 40 years and how that led to Britain being so lacking in resilience as COVID hit. But secondly, going back much further to show how our long-term history assists us in charting a way out of this malaise. Now, it may surprise people to know that one of the first things we emphasize in the book is that Britain had the world's first ever welfare state and that it was created 400 years ago. So I know there is a, a project, the LSE, about beverage 2.0. Well, I have to tell you uh, that our book uh, in, the implication of our book is that you're actually talking about beverage 3.0. Um, Elizabeth I's poor laws were truly innovative and groundbreaking in the protection they gave to all those experiencing hardship. They transferred at their height enough money to support 10% of the population for half a year or 5% for an entire year. Everyone in all parts of the country, town and countryside, knew that they had statutory entitlement to basic subsistence support should they be sick, disabled, elderly or unemployed. Uh, that was recognised as well as a, as a problem. Welfare states are not then a modern democratic creation, a luxury for wealthy nations invented by beverage in the 1940s. They're not something that's just nice to have and could be, can be cut back in hard times with no serious harm to the economy. On the contrary, we argue that the welfare state that was begun by Elizabeth I was an essential precondition for Britain's subsequent industrial revolution. It facilitated the development of what we call collectivist individualism as the driving principle of a dynamic and nurturing society, which is what Britain became. Our contemporary view of I, today, uh, our contemporary view of either collectivism or individualism often defaults into so, uh, some kind of political opposites to each other. Some form of state socialism or individualism as unrestrained free market freedom, as if collectivism and individualism are opposing choices. You have to, has to be one or the other. In fact, our history shows that Britain's economic strength has been greatest when combining the two. Apart from the very rich, this is because apart from the very rich, individuals cannot thrive and be their best selves unless society is providing them with resources. And that means education, income, security, and health. When that happens, as it has at two key periods in Britain's history, and I mean the period leading up to the Industrial Revolution and then the post-war 
so-called golden age of the modern welfare state, the three decades after World War II. When that happens, productivity, social mobility and growth all take off and the historical evidence is there to demonstrate it. The Elizabethan poor laws, which is what I'm talking about, were enacted in 1598 and 1601. They were founded on the compulsory progressive taxation of land. And land at that time was the main source of wealth. It was levied in 10,000 parishes. Every single parish of the country was a devolved mini welfare state in order to support those in need, including times of hard times of dearth and hunger. Don't forget dearth, famine um, uh, affected uh, all early modern economies and societies regularly, unpredictably, but often. So a, a system that was um, protecting society against this was extremely important uh, and the poor law did do that. When uh, the whole population was given guaranteed food security so that from 1624 onwards, England, was, which is where the poor law was first established, was free from famine mortality. And that is over 150 years earlier than anywhere else in Europe. Massive advantage to the population to have that kind of security. But the poor law also facilitated labour mobility on a mass scale, with the free being young to move for jobs, knowing that their parents would be cared for. You could move to the local city and know that your parents were not going to be left to starve because the poor law provided for them. And your parents knew that too. They didn't have to hang on to you desperately. Um, and also as a young person moving for work, you could take the risk going to a, an, a, a town where you know, knew nobody, that you wouldn't be left by the wayside to starve. The worst that could happen to you if there really wasn't work for you uh, was that you would be removed back to the parish of where you came from, called your parish of settlement. And that would be at the cost of the parish removing you. And then, of course, you could try your luck again uh, a while later. The poor law also supported England's developed apprenticeship system. England experienced completely exceptional growth. It's hard to get across without a graph just how extraordinary this was. Between 1600 and 1800, the proportion of the English population living in urban places with more than 5,000 residents grew by 350% over 200 years. At a time, that's, that was 10 times greater growth than anywhere else in Europe including even the most advanced economy of the period, which was Holland, uh, the Netherlands. The Netherlands was very advanced in 1600, but its, its urbanization didn't expand much over the next 200 years. The economy was transformed through this because of course, it's urbanization that made possible the specialization and division of labor, which Adam Smith was of course so impressed with, uh, made possible by successive younger generations flooding to those towns and places where jobs were available. Now, in this all came to a, an end in 1834, the Elizabethan poor law was radically reformed. It, it's alleged 
overgenerous provision was replaced with the deterrent workhouses that are uh, no famous to everybody from the mainly from the novels of Charles Dickens. The negative effects of these reforms were immediately manifested in the cessation of a previous trend of rising life expectancy. Although population had grown so much, from 1730 to 1820, expectation of life at birth in England actually rose, it actually improved, but that came to an end in 1820. Uh, from 1820 through to 1870, uh, the, the, the population's life expectancy failed to register any further improvements. And then there was a decline in British economic productivity, which had risen to a peak between 1830 and 1870, and then was overtaken by the United States and then by Germany, uh, with the, the United States famously investing heavily in the education of their populations to a much greater extent than Britain did. And Germany, of course, famously with Bismarck, providing workers with underpinning employment, unemployment insurance, which England had in effect moved away from. As the workhouses became filled with the old and the infirm, and the upper classes saw in the Boer War that conscripts were um, undernourished from, po from poverty. This was a, a, became a scandal in the Edwardian period that the Imperial Army was unable to defeat uh, a, 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 an army of farmers in South Africa and lots of conscripts couldn't actually be recruited because they were in such poor shape. So the workhouses are just rather unpleasant old people's homes and the poor, the working classes are undernourished. That meant that the new Liberal government of 1906 to 11 brought in finally old age pensions in 1908 and unemployment and health insurance in 1911, or rather late in the day. Then, of course, the interwar decades were very difficult periods, no further expansion in uh, social provision. But after the devastation of the 1930s and particularly World War II, 1945 saw the birth of the modern welfare state. Family allowances to mothers, free secondary schooling for the entire population, free healthcare, the NHS famously in 1948, and a programme of house rebuilding. Uh, working class housing was in a terrible shape in many places. Interestingly, productivity growth in the period 1951 to 1973 was the highest in British history, 2.4% per worker and with full employment. It's an incredible economic record. This went hand in hand with progressive taxation of wealth, inheritance and incomes. A lot of young people don't realise that this period of the best economic uh, uh, output in our history, there were 80 to 90, the, the top rate of marginal tax on income and inherited wealth was eight, between 80 and 90%. Didn't stop the economy from uh, performing well. So the conclusion is that Collective is from our history, a historical review, is that in England and Britain more, more generally, collectivism and individualism have not been opposites. British history shows that our economic and social cohesion is greatest when combining the two as what we have called in this book collectivist individualism. British society and its economy has flourished most when it has embraced both universal social security and a facilitative 
nurturing welfare state, helping all individuals to thrive and to which all contribute in progressive proportion to their means. This happened in two key periods in our history, the two centuries leading into the Industrial Revolution and then again in the post-war Golden Age. In both cases, productivity, social mobility and growth took off in a manner which spread prosperity and empowered individuals widely in society. And I now hand over to Hilary. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to begin by reflecting on Rishi Sunak's budget statement last October, which at the time was widely reported to have increased the size of the state to levels reminiscent of the 1970s, while also upping the tax take to its highest level of as, a, as a percentage of GDP since the 1950s. Before he even sat down, Sunak had expressed his clear unease with that, then setting out his aspiration to be cutting taxes by the end of the parliament, talking about the moral dimension to the challenges he faced and stating his intention to revert to a smaller state. It echoed his language a year earlier when he said that once the pandemic emergency was over, the government had a sacred duty to balance the books. What Sunak was doing was trying to pass off as self-evident the supposed truth, um, even the moral imperative in his view, that a larger state should necessarily be considered a bad thing. Now, for the moment, Rishi Sunak has halted austerity, but in every area apart from health, he has not reversed it. In many cases, especially local government, he hasn't got anywhere near to restoring spending to where it was in 2010. So the neoliberal commitment to shrinking the public sphere the Washington consensus that has dominated thinking in the UK and the USA since 1979 is, it seems, under his chancellorship, still alive and well. But as we set out in our book, it was that ideology, then ramped up by the austerity of the last 10 years, that had left us with so little resilience when COVID-19 hit. COVID was not the unpredictable black swan, the once in a hundred years event, that some liked to claim. There had been plenty of warning of what was to come. Documents that were leaked in 2020 confirmed that a pandemic had for years been the top red risk on the UK's National Security Risk Register. Planning and stress testing for that eventuality had therefore been routine up until 2016, which was the year of the last major rehearsal exercise sickness. That exercise found major deficiencies in our preparedness, including our stocks of PPE and ominously the resilience of the care sector. Yet none of this was acted on. Political attention and resources were instead diverted away from pandemic resilience to planning for Brexit, including the possibility of a no deal withdrawal. Even in early 2020, Boris Johnson was sufficiently cavalier about the approach of COVID-19 that he missed all five of the COBRA emergency planning meetings in January and February. But it was not just ineffective government and inadequate planning that had left us on the back foot. The cuts in public services made during the decade of austerity had also left the country peculiarly vulnerable to a shock such as COVID. NHS bed capacity had been cut by over 30,000 beds. That's around one in six leaving no provision to respond in an emergency. 
stockpiles of PPE had been run down against expert advice to build them up, so that for weeks into the pandemic, health and care staff were working without adequate protection, some, as we know, paying for that with their lives. Less well known is that our 100-year-old pioneering public health capability was so depleted that contact tracing of those with COVID was abandoned in the middle of March 2020 because the capacity was not there to deal with the rising numbers. The panicked response to create from scratch a privatised service, NHS Test and Trace, was not operational until late May of that year. And as is now known, Test and Trace has spent £37 billion of public money without actually achieving its core objectives for much of its first year. So it seems that we couldn't have made our population more vulnerable to the shock of an event like COVID if we'd tried. Having removed so many NHS beds, in March and April 2020, 25,000 elderly patients had to be precipitously discharged from hospital into care homes to free up that capacity that the NHS had lost. But that was accompanied with an instruction that negative COVID tests were not required. And the ensuing toll in terms of care home deaths in April and May 2020, which ran into tens of thousands, was one of the scandals of our pandemic response. But there were more insidious issues. The gig economy and the increasing casualization of the workforce meant that large numbers of frontline and key workers, such as taxi and delivery drivers, or even agency care staff, were left without adequate, or in many cases, any sick pay entitlement. Most had no savings to fall back on and were in precarious jobs that they could not risk taking time off from. The result was that many were working when sick and risking spreading COVID both among their co-workers but also among their families and communities. And it's no coincidence in the light of this that the death rate from COVID turned out to be twice as high in the most deprived fifth of, of the population as it was in the least deprived fifth. Failures in the way the pandemic was managed in 2020 further magnified its impact on health and the economy. No action was taken to control our borders, to stop large public events going ahead in March 2020, and lockdowns were dangerously delayed both in the spring and astonishingly again in the autumn of 2020. The Office for Budget Responsibilities report in March 2021 noted that the UK had suffered the biggest contraction in economic activity 10% of all the major economies in 2020. This was, they said, because high rates of infection and hospitalisation forced the UK into much longer periods of lockdown than would have been needed had the government acted decisively to bring in restrictions earlier on. Perhaps we should now be wondering why an era of active government and high public service investment is so self-evidently unattractive. Of course, we don't want to go back to the twin tubs and Morris miners of the 1950s. But as Simon has said, there is a lot about the post-war era that we could learn from. Interestingly, as early as April 2020, the Financial Times published an editorial that began to move towards exactly that insight. They argued, in the light of our shockingly low resilience to COVID's impact, that radical... Yeah, this is a quote, radical reforms reversing the prevailing policy direction of the last four decades will need to be put on the table. Governments will have to accept a more active role in the economy. They must see public services as investments rather than liabilities. 
and look for ways to make labour markets less insecure. Redistribution will again be on the agenda, the privileges of the elderly and wealthy in question. Policies until recently considered eccentric, such as basic income and wealth taxes, will have to be in the mix, end quote. So in the narrative about returning to 1950s levels of taxation, as Simon has said, the point that tends to be missed is that taxation in the 1950s was also highly progressive. By contrast, Sunak's recent tax hikes have frozen personal tax thresholds for ordinary workers. Will, as things stand, push up national insurance, a tax on earned income and employment, but have left wealth taxed at much lower rate than income is taxed, while council tax and other wealth tax also remains regressive and unreformed. Child poverty doubled during the 1980s in the UK, rising from 15% to over 30%, falling back a little under new labour, but now back to levels above 30%. Contrast that increasing poverty with the growth of private wealth, which has risen since the 1970s from three times the size of our national income to seven times its size by the time of the pandemic, uh, which of course further stoked wealth accumulation. As Torsten Bell, chief executive of the Resolution Foundation points out, while wealth has grown much faster than income in recent decades, wealth taxes have not risen at all and are riddled with problems. This, he says, is not a situation a post-virus Britain can afford. Sunak could already have acted on this last October or could do so now as the population as a whole is hit with an energy and cost of living crisis. Simply aligning the taxation of capital and income would raise really significant amounts of revenue. And it's something that the Office for Tax Simplification has already recommended that he should do. Had he done so, he could have avoided needing to raise national insurance at all. Our book concludes by arguing that we need to revive our historic inheritance of collectivist individualism as we did so successfully after the Second World War. This would create a genuinely empowering society to replace the neoliberalism that continues to disempower so many people. We see this empowering society as being built on seven core pillars. The first we call a nurturing state, requiring us to invest to overcome widening health and educational divides, to provide for the needs of an aging population for health and social care, and to reform the benefit system to deliver dignity and security, ending child poverty and benefit debt. Taking its lead from the Elizabethan and post-war welfare states, this would be supported by fair and progressive tax contributions, another of our pillars with an emphasis on wealth taxation to permanently raise the revenue needed. A third pillar, ethical capitalism, would introduce new laws to change the way that businesses are run so that they focus on creating value for society rather than extracting value purely for short-term shareholder gain. All this, we argue, must be supported by a renewal of democratic discourse that counteracts today's cronyism and corruption, which saw such wasteful and in some cases actually illegal pandemic spending. Local government must be properly resourced and communities and young people given a voice through, for instance, citizens' assemblies and an extension of the vote to all those aged 15 and over, those school children who were out on the streets campaigning for their future. Our final two pillars relate to that future, arguing for us to live within our environmental limits and to refocus our measures of success onto appropriate sustainable goals, not the elusive chasing after ever higher growth. 
To conclude, COVID-19 was almost certainly just the dress rehearsal for the rest of this century's challenges, um, not least the need to redress both climate change and global inequality. If we are to look forward imaginatively to a better future, then that must be one in which we leave behind the learned helplessness of the neoliberal state and commit instead to a new morality of collective support. Thank you very much, Hilary, Simon. Um, I will confess that I'm rather shocked to hear that the LSE did not invent the British welfare state. Um, <laughs> it is very much part of our self-esteem here. So to learn that, in fact, it was Elizabeth I who did that. Um, I'm sure that will raise a few eyebrows among colleagues. Uh, maybe not in Cambridge where you are, but 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 yes, in central London where I am. In any case, um, I'm going to ask a few questions, if I may, uh, and to make it fun, maybe I'll take a little bit of a contrarian view so that we can add some salt and pepper to our discussion, and then we will we will open it up to um to uh to the audience, which I'm sure, as is typical in LSE events, will have plenty to say and plenty of questions. Um, my first question will be a little bit unfair because you said this would be uh, an exercise in lesson, you know, learning from history, but if I change the lens a little bit and I look not across time, but across countries. You know, you've made the case that countries with a larger state were more resilient and therefore better equipped to deal with the virus. And that may be so, but the social scientist in me wants to say, you know, there were countries around the world with very large states that did very poorly uh, in dealing with the virus, Italy. There are countries with tiny little states that did very well in uh, dealing with the virus, Singapore. Um, there were capitalist countries that did very badly in dealing with the virus, um, like, um, like the United States, for that matter, a complete and total disaster. And there were socialist countries, I guess, can you call China socialist countries anymore, but at least a state capitalist country like China did very well. So as a first approximation, the social scientist in me wants to say, and of course, one would have to do this, uh, this analysis a lot more carefully, and I'm sure a million dissertations are being written already on this, that there's no obvious relationship between the size of the state or the overall policy orientation of a country or a government and its performance in dealing with COVID. It seems to be, you know, if you like large states, you'll find an example of a large state doing well. But if you are, you know, a, a, a Chicago School of Economics disciple and you like small states, you can point to Singapore and a couple of other countries, tiny little states, and did pretty well. So in what sense is this a generalizable conclusion? Uh, and again, this is this is regardless of, of of whether one likes big states or small states. I'm sure in our in our audience, we will have, find advocates of both. But can we stake this claim with some level of generality? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting to take that perspective. Of course, um, yeah, changes the optic. I think that um, the the argument we're making is the the largeness or not of the state particularly the central state, is not the crucial point we're arguing about. Um, and it wouldn't, for instance, the kind of welfare state created by Elizabeth I had, had absolutely, apart from the statutes, mm -hmm. had no central state mm -hmm. function at all. Right. It was completely devolved. Um, and so the, 
I think that the issue when we're talking about a nurturing state and one of our seven pillars is about reinvigorating local government, elected representative local government, um, is that uh, the state such as it is should be um, a highly sensitive local state. It should be, I mean, to use the, 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 the phrase that uh, a term that I've I was actually, I think I was involved in inventing with Michael Wilcock about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, linking social capital is crucial. So this term social capital that's used a lot is often talked about with civic society, what Michael Wilcock and I emphasized 20 years ago. Uh, in discussion with um, Rob, Bob, Robert Putnam, we said Putnam's only talking... He, he had his theory of bridging and bonding social capital. And we mm -hmm. said, you're missing something, Bob. There's linking social capital is crucial. And linking social capital is about the quality of the relationships between people in society that have different formal power. Mm -hmm. So that would apply for, to officials and to people providing resources to the poor and to poor communities. And the crucial thing is that they do this in an entirely respectful way uh, and in a dignified way. So the question there is, it, so what I'm kind of really putting on the, on the, on the desk here is, is that it's is, is to get away from this state versus the individual stuff, which I think is so misleading and is, is just destructive. It's very, you know, it, it lends itself to easy polemic. But, you know, what we really need is an economy and a government and a society that is focused on the quality of relationships between people and how those relationships use resources for, you know, the majority, the, the vast majority, for most, for everybody to actually um, flourish, to, 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 to be their best selves. And we're not anywhere near that and i think that mm -hmm. the kind of the framing of, of state versus individual is completely unhelpful in getting there it's it's a, an unhelpful framing that that's very very helpful um and i think getting away from the from the rather old-fashioned fight of state versus individual uh i think clarifies the discussion but I'll get back to relationships in a minute, but you, you mentioned resources. Um, Hillary did make the claim in talking about the chancellor that money was an issue and that in fact, higher taxation would be desirable. And as an economist, I can imagine, you know, making a case for higher taxes, um, especially um, given that interest rates in the world are going up and therefore debt levels will, you know, once again become an issue. But you, were, you seem to be drawing, uh, Simon and Hillary, a link between the availability of resources, the size of you know, the budget, maybe not the size of the state, but the size of the budget and, and uh, resiliency. I am perfectly aware that there was a heated uh, and, and often nasty debate in the UK and elsewhere about austerity in the last decade or so. But do we, do we really have hard evidence that austerity is to be blamed for British lack of resilience? Again, the you know, social scientist in me wants to look across Europe. There are some countries that did austerity, some countries that didn't. And I can find austerity countries that did very well and some you know, non-austerity countries that did very poorly. Can we make that claim with any degree of confidence? 
It may be it may be that austerity was a bad idea for for other reasons. I'm not disputing that. Uh, um, but uh, is the tight empirical link between that and COVID-related performance there? Is it in the data, both in Britain and uh, elsewhere? I mean, I I think you know some of it is about the attitude to governance, uh, uh, and, and as we we've perhaps seen under uh, recent uh, conservative leadership, the seriousness with which um, preparation and planning is taken, and and. That might not be directly related to resources, but it's it's a it's an attitude to governance and government that that perhaps goes along with with the ideology, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and the, and the, the why did we stop planning for a pandemic after 2016 after we'd had the Brexit vote, and we decided to stop you you know stop having those resources, you know we, we maybe had only limited amount of resources for resilience planning. And we decided that um, the government decided that, okay, the key resilience risk was Brexit, not um, pandemic planning. So those resources were moved. So, um, you know, that obviously exposed us to greater risk, a risk that was known about. Um, I mean, you know, things like one of the issues um, why we didn't have the PPE. I mean, the, the amount of PPE that we had when the pandemic hit was incredibly small i mean it was it was a matter of i think just a couple of weeks of of ppe was available and it and it was rationed so care homes didn't get it it, it was rationed to the to the health service and that was actually the direct result of targets that was that that, that the um, provision of those supplies to the health service was um privatized it was given to a private contractor during the, um, the second half of the austerity decade, and they were given targets to reduce the amount of money that was spent on those provisions on procurement. And those targets did not include any targets around resilience in a pandemic. So some of it is about attitude to government, about a, a kind of this um, pushing for savings without thinking through the implications. And obviously, that's not in comparative data, but it. But what, what, you know, when you start to track these things, and when you you look at a country like Germany, and they have multiply higher numbers of beds per um, unit of population, both ordinary day beds in hospitals and critical care beds. I mean, you know, they were right at the top of the distribution. We were right at the bottom of the distribution across mm-hmm. Europe, um, and. You know, the, the, one of the reasons, as I said, for the really high um, death toll in care homes was was we just had to get people out of hospital because we didn't have the beds. So it's this, and that was that was the philosophy of running hot. It was, you know, it's, it's a sort of a market philosophy. We don't have any slack. We run hot. You know, we, we you know, so we we just take the hit when we need to and and you know a pandemic isn't really compatible with that sort of an approach so i think some of it was it's not necessarily about resources it's about approach and attitude to to government and governance and and of course you know you may say i think it has been said in the last couple of days that maybe boris johnson is an unfortunate prime minister for the current times if one could rewind history um, and, you know, Simon is a historian, so may, he may be disinclined to do that. But um, you mentioned one crucial decision, which is to, to spend less on PPE, really stop planning for the pandemic. 
What are the other two or three things that history suggests could have been done differently or should have been done differently in the UK so that we would have you know, been caught in a better situation? Um, is it an issue of money? Is there an issue of attitude? Were there particular policies that were discontinued or neglected? Um, you know, let, let, let's rewrite the book here. If we could go back to say, of course, you know, one might want to rewrite the book and do without Brexit entirely, but that might be too ambitious, right? Uh, in sort of, you know, pandemic or public health related matters, what were the two or three, maybe four or five items that you'd really highlight that could have been handled differently? I mean, not losing our um, ability to, to our, our tracking ability, our, our, our disease right. tracking ability, right. um, which set us back months. And, and in fact, because the NHS test and trace um, capability was so poor, mm-hmm. we had a real problem in September 2020 when schools went back. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if people oh. remember, but... Um, uh, Dido Harding went before a select committee and said that that, that they hadn't realised that there would be a rise in the virus in September 2020 when schools went back and they actually lost track of the virus then and that was the point at which we should have had a circuit breaker lockdown that we didn't. So you can identify things like that. I think what a key thing I think is sick pay, you know, as, as, you know, the, the sort of the the demise in the power of trade unions, the growth of this casualized labor force, the fact that you had, you know, a very significant proportion of the population with either no sick pay, and that, and that many did, or very low sick pay, wow. and that they overlapped with the social economy. So, you know, the people who were in shops, in retail, in, you know, or self-employed delivery drivers and agency care staff. I, th- I think, and, and sick pay was not always like that. So I, I, I think the sort of this idea that, you know, it's, it's another um, transference of risk from the state to the individual, which happened over that period of austerity. And I, you know, that had such serious consequences, not only for deaths of the, pe- you know, the people who, who were affected individually, but for the spread of the virus, because there's there's a lot of um, qualitative evidence that people were not were turning off the um, the app that would ping them that they couldn't afford to self isolate, so they were avoiding knowing that they needed to self isolate or going into work when they were sick. I, you know, and and of course the issues with overcrowding of houses, which were the same groups of people who were who were then, um, you know, I mean there was a scheme in New York that identified people for whom it was dangerous to be isolating in, in certain types of housing that gave them, uh, you know, hotel facilities to isolate in. We, we never, you know, we just didn't join up policy. And, you know, and Simon might want to talk about the, um, the isolation hospitals that there used to be in, mm-hmm. in disease. We, did, we didn't even think about how we could safely isolate people who were ill. Yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, it's extraordinary. As a historian, it's absolutely extraordinary that you can go back to the 1603 Plague Act. Mm-hmm. And, and it's quite clear in statute legislation, the recognition that if you are going to ask families to uh, socially isolate, then the word is, you know, although, it, although it's a modern term, it was exactly what, then you've got to feed them. Uh, it's quite clear, you know, that, that parishes have to tax themselves in times of, 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 uh, of plague as well as in times of famine. 
and that if you don't want people in infected houses to come out into your community, you feed them and you tax yourselves to feed them. And I mean, you know, this was a sort of a lesson that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. And we have a, you know, we've, we had a government which was, you know, we're, we're in danger of making a very, we're doing something very similar now. They're talking about the costs for poor people going going high in, in this year because of energy and and so on. And we've got a government that has is, is still kind of thinks that it's fine to, to jack up national insurance and they and they and they still have cut Benef- benefits were frozen for years and there was this big hoo-ha about whether they would give people 20 pounds a week extra, which is nothing like what the, the benefit freeze has caused to them. So we've still got a government that doesn't really think that you you need to support poor people in in hard times and and that's a lesson which you know is hundreds and hundreds of years old and 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 all the all the um political capital they burned with Marcus Rashford you know resisting what the entire nation thought was sensible uh and in very bad grace finally sort of saying oh okay we'll we'll allow dinners I mean there there is something really wrong with this the common sense of this government which i think you know we can trace to this sort of neoliberal view of the world and markets sort everything out uh, it, it's just it's out of date and it's no use for us and we especially you know the coming century there are going to be more every decade there are going to be more and more problems of this sort when we this is not a helpful guide and a helpful way of, of approaching things you're very confidently speaking of the government we have. Maybe a same government will not be in place by the time we're done with this discussion. But that's that's a, duff, a different, uh, yeah. but juicy but juicy subject. Um, a reminder to the audience um, that the Q and A function is open. So if people would like to write in questions, I'm going to allow myself a question or two more, and then I will turn to questions from the audience. Um, Let's get a bit more philosophical for a minute. We've talked about money. We've talked about policy. You mentioned this um, tantalizing notion, somewhat unusual sounding, of collectivist individualism. We don't typically hear those two words joined together like that. Tell us a bit more about exactly what you mean by that and what's distinctive about you know such a kind of individualism being practiced in Britain. Mm. Well, I think... These terms, collectivism and individualism, have been um, perhaps, you know, as one would expect, uh, predominantly seen as the province of philosophers uh, who um, like to um, discuss things in very logical, rational terms and make distinctions and so on. And, And clearly, these two terms have very distinct meanings to them. But as soon as we start applying any ideas or words to real existing societies, economies, uh, polities, uh, you know, we all know that uh, things start getting more nuanced and more uh, more complex. And, you know, when we view the history of Britain and its families and its parishes and its economy, um, it makes no sense at all. To, to, to insist that we've either got to, <laughs> that it's either a form of individualism that we're looking at, or it's a form of collectivism that we're looking at. 
Um, these two have very, very clearly been um, going, running along together uh, in a productive way for some centuries, but then uh, reduced significantly when, when the new poor law came into the workhouses. We do see collectivism migrating into a different area. We see uh, friendly societies, as they were called, uh, the early you know, pre-trade pre unions. We see local congregations of churches becoming very important in the 1830s and 40s in Britain. Um, and it's arguably one of the reasons why in the United States, um, uh, adherence to local church is, remains so strong, is that that's a form of collectivism that even the Wild West, you know, great individualist free market United States actually manifests. So, you know, the, the, when, when we study... Many yeah, are for-profit churches, so you have an ambiguity there. You <laughs> see the television things, they're extraordinary. But, yeah. but you know, so when, when, when is it, you know, my job as a historian is to study uh, and, and analyse and understand uh, as much as one can um, real functioning societies and, and, and communities and so on. And collectivism and individualism are use, useful analytic terms to bring to them. But the you know the 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 notion that they're mutually exclusive, uh, I think, is very is profoundly unhelpful and misleading. Um, and uh, we have a discipline of economics, the the mainstream neoclassical version, which I think doesn't sufficiently understand this. Well, as an economist, I would take issue with that. I think maybe there are many varieties of modern economics which do sure. worry a lot about. Issues of collective action, issues yeah. of cooperation. How do you get cooperation? When does cooperation fail, etc.? But that's for another. That's for another meeting, I'm afraid. Um, so let me turn to a couple of questions here from from the audience. Um, we have something that I'm not sure the question or a comment, but uh, it is certainly about history. Uh, Bernard Casey, uh, you, I think you'll enjoy this. Simon says, uh, "Can we not date everything back to Thomas Cromwell?" wanted to use the proceeds from the dissolution of monasteries to provide education and health care. So there we have yet another candidate for the invention of the British welfare state. Yes, this is... That, is that so? Um, and if so, how would it fit into your... Into yes, your it's, a well, it's a welfare state? Yeah, but this is a well-informed um, uh, comment that uh, both in the period of the... Um, uh, early reformation and so on we can and, and before the reformation comes to england we can see um ideas circulating thomas more's utopia is sometimes cited as a as an early um source as well but but thomas cromwell it is true um the great cambridge historian jeffrey elton uh 60 70 years ago now um produced a an article in which he had done some primary research into cromwell's archival papers and found a really quite long document, uh, 50 or 60 pages, in which Cromwell was trying very hard to think about a poor law uh, of, the, of the kind that we're talking about. And he even got um, his king, Henry VIII, actually went into Parliament to see if he could persuade uh, Parliament to, to enact it, but uh, unusually was, was unable to do so. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons they thought was that 
their lordships uh, and the landowners in uh, the lordships were in their lords, but the men, men, most of the commons were, were landowners at that time. They really didn't like this idea of a permanent compulsory tax on them, which is what was being envisaged. Um, uh, it wasn't just that they could take all the proceeds of the dis dissolution of the monasteries, that it was re realised that actually you needed, you know, continual um, uh, funding for this. Uh, and in effect, the acts of 1598 and 1601, right at the end of Elizabeth I's reign, are the product of about 70 years of experimentation that go back to Cromwell. And in between, there are, there are several other poor law attempts. That some of them even get onto the statutes, um, but they don't quite function. They're, they're, they have flaws in them. And one of the reasons why the 1598-1601 acts um, are so famous is that they come on the back of all that experimentation. They finally devised a system that proved itself and worked and then stayed on the statutes until 1834. All right. Well, um, clearly the history of the welfare state is more complex and dates back farther than, than most of us uh, would have assumed. Um, we have a couple more questions that I want to put to you, both um, Simon and Hilary. We've talked about social capital. You, you mentioned the work of, of Bob Putnam at Harvard, and there's sort of variations on that theme. So um, there's a question here that says, you know, tell us a bit more of what you mean by social capital, how it is defined, and in what sense precisely did the absence or the lack of social capital contribute to the poor COVID performance in the UK? Yeah, so I think that um, the classic notion of social capital was sort of how to establish trusting uh, relationships uh, in society and um, Putnam classically distinguished between bonding and bridging, bonding between people who were alike to each other mm -hmm. um, and bond and bridging being uh, possibilities of such trusting relations forming across individual, forming between individuals who, who, could, who knew that they were not alike each other and so his classic example was things like sporting or singing groups where people might come together from different walks of life and because of the shared activities they could then you know um, uh, trust each other in other contexts as well I suppose you know the darkest the darker side of social capital is things like the Freemasons uh, and so you know the you know so social capitalism and isn't an unalloyed good mm -hmm. um, it it has it can be used yeah, both for beneficial and for non-beneficial purposes um, and then what Michael Walcock and I thought was that there, there is actually a further a further kind of bridging social capital which we called linking social capital uh, which is very important where we're talking about the kinds of relationships that happen between um, governmental or other institutions and citizens, um, where on the one hand, it, this can be simply reduced to some kind of professional relationship, the, 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 you know, the, the, the kind of the provision of a statutory service in an impersonal way, but that if, if it is accompanied by... Uh, an emphasis on the kind of respectful and trusting relationships that social capital um, focuses on, then that can immensely improve uh, the effectiveness of 
the, what's going on here. Um, you know, the, the, a world of difference between um, uh, being served by a nurse or a doctor who is treating you a little bit like you, you shouldn't really be there and, and, you know, you're just a nuisance in their lives as against, you know, the classic bedside manner, as it's called, you know, a doctor or a nurse who is solicitous towards you and, and, and you feel cares for you. Um, and, th- and this is a very, very different, you know, uh, kind of thing. So, so we think that the whole business of delivery and management of, pub- of, of public services during the last 20 years has become far too focused on the so-called, just the economic narrow efficiency of them you know, it's, fam- it's well known that social carers are going into people's homes and they have minutes to deal with people and then they're rushing off to the next one and so on so that some private equity company can make, make their profits on, on this activity. Well, this is the antithesis of the kind of linking social capital that we need in our public services. And, when, and if we take linking social capital really seriously as a metric and so on, then it will inevitably result in the delivery of public services in a much more time uh, sensitive way and in a way which inevitably will be less efficient if you're measuring them simply in terms of some kind of monetary profits uh, and so on. But that's a, you know, a complete, completely the wrong way of delivering public services anyway. Um, I, I maybe say a little bit about um, forms of social capital during the pandemic itself. And I think that um, perhaps, the, you know, the extent of the emergency did bring forward somewhat of a, of a kind of war spirit. I mean, we, you know, the, the fact that um, during the first few weeks, at least, first few months of the pandemic, we had people out on their doorsteps every Thursday night clapping health workers um, and care workers. And the, the enormous um, pulling together in local communities. I mean, you know, even in my road, we had a WhatsApp group. People were identifying who was shielding, who needed food, taking to them, shopping done for them. This kind of amazing community spirit that, that was drawn forth in the, those first few weeks and months. And yet you, you, you combined that with, you know, the, the, well, I mean, it's obviously it's coming to an absolute for, for a crisis at the moment that people were complying with rules and then they saw Dominic Cummings perhaps not complying with rules. So, so there were, you know, there were messages about public safety, about public, you know, compliance and about doing things for the good of other people um, that, that obviously reflected social capital, but were in some cases undermined. Um, And I think that that perhaps, you know, that, I mean, areas where, where that's fracturing somewhat, of course, um, you know, the health workers were then offered um, a, a pay offer that, that they felt, you know, you know, they felt that everyone was, you know, lovey-dovey on their doorsteps clapping them. But when it came to it, um, obviously, the people on their doorsteps perhaps would have liked to have given them a, a generous pay offer, but the government wouldn't. So that that kind of, I think, soured the sense of, of all pulling together. But I think it's also... Um, it maybe has to now, we now have to consider the issue of vaccine compliance and whether, you know, to what extent some of the issues around um, groups who are not getting vaccinated 
um, is to do with lack of trust in, in public messaging, that, mm. that we're not able to get across, you know, that, that those messages about, you know, you may not need to be vaccinated because you're young and healthy, but you're doing this for the benefit of others. And, and you know, as a society, are we effectively getting those messages across? So that's, mm-hmm. I think that's a key area of vaccination where trust and social capital is actually very important. I think that last point is absolutely key. Um, I, I thought when you mentioned social capital, I thought immediately you were going to go to the issue of trust. Because I, I have seen some work done. There are papers out there suggesting that high trust societies did better in the pandemic precisely because of the reasons Hillary just mentioned. Um, you know, uh, if, if, if somebody wearing an apron says vaccines are good, uh, I know I trust that person uh, by virtue of that person's job and training. And therefore, I go and get a jab. But if I think that person is an agent of some evil conspiracy, well, I probably will not. Um, Mm-hmm. And that's true for you know vaccines, but it's true for a number of other public health directors, directives, sorry, which people may choose to obey or may people may choose to disobey. And there's this massive, this is not so much about the UK, but this look across the world, there's a massive difference in the degree to which lockdowns were enforceable and enforced. You know, we have Google data, Google mobility data, and, and there are some mm-hmm. cities in the world in which streets are empty, and there's some cities in the world in which presumably everybody is in lockdown, but you see. You know, Google suggesting that streets are packed. <laughs> um, and a lot of that must have to do with trust, right? Um, if, if I trust uh, uh, the economic authorities of my country to keep the economy going, well, I will be happy to, not happy, but I'm willing to stay home and maybe uh, lower my income for a few months because I, I trust that the economy will come back roaring and I will have a, a, a good job, which will pay well by the end of the pandemic. If there is no trust, well, I will go out and, you know, peddle some candy because I may not have any income in the future. But trust is absolutely, absolutely key. But in any case, I, I, I got sidetracked into my own reflections here, and we have a couple more questions that I would like to put to you. Um, Yiming Zhao uh, says, thank you for your sharing. And um, Yiming would like to know about the policies that go with the goal of collect- collectivist individualism. Um, so if this is a this is a, an outlook that is desirable, what kinds of policies uh, or what kinds of attitudes uh, follow from that kind of individualism that would have uh, enhanced resilience to events like COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that uh, the, the big problem with, you know, you mentioned earlier what should have been done differently. I mean, I think from 2013 when Excelgate blew a hole in Osborne's rationale for austerity, uh, the key academic work he was relying on to give him cover for his austerity policies, that should have there should have been a reversal out of them in 2013 immediately, um, which of course never happened. And I don't quite know why. Uh, I don't understand why that wasn't really very severely challenged. And so the kinds of policies that we've been running for the entire austerity decade have been to starve health, social care, social work, local government uh, of resources, which means ultimately people, work staff working and, and working well. This is, you know, this is what, what we need more of um, for uh, collectivist individualism. Collectivist individualism means um, resources being deployed 
for citizens to enable, to nurture them. We use this word, the nurturing state. And nurturing requires care and it requires attention. It requires time. And that means paying people to do that. Teachers, social workers, uh, et cetera, um, uh, to, to put you know, in the high quality attention that young people from the age of zero to 21 years old and more. Uh, we, you and I teach some of these young people at the end of their ages. Uh, you know, they need this. They need this. This costs. This, this, is, this is a society, um, you know, nurturing its humans, all of them. You know, if you look at what the richest people in our society do they they know this very well they want to spend as much as they can on their children through to you know they'll spend tens of thousands of pounds on school fees and things like that um so you know what they're buying is the attention and time and effort of other people to to you know to to, to input uh to, to to these young young minds and so on so it's it's very i think evident what we need, we need to value and we need to put uh, resources into that rather than, um, you know, status goods and material goods, buying expensive cars and houses and yachts and things. This is just, you know, uh, ephemera. Um, it's not really about development of societies or of the flourishing of people. We have a couple more questions in the chat, but I want to allow myself one last question. Uh, uh, let me just express a little bit of skepticism on a link that you seem to be drawing, which is less than evidence to me. Um, you seem to be suggesting that governments can create trust or destroy trust over fairly short periods of time by virtue of how much they spend and what resources they deploy in, in, in public health and other domains. But there's, a, there's an academic literature that suggests otherwise. You know, if you look at, to go back to Putnam, uh, Putnam describes Northern Italy as being a high trust um, uh, society and Southern Italy as being a low trust society. But Putnam's conjecture is that these differences in trust go back to differences in the way Northern Italy and Southern Italy were uh, governed uh, way back in the Middle Ages. You know, the Italian city states in the North were, were, were more independent, autonomous, and that gave rise to a kind of culture which was absent in the South. Um, you know, other people have, have, have run more sort of formal uh, statistical uh, analyses, suggesting in fact that is true. Anyway, there's a big empirical uh, trust literature out there which suggests that trust is a very slow moving variable. So is it the case that, that you know, Rishi Sunak could, Sunak could, you know, get up tomorrow and you know, spend a few more billion and suddenly, you know, residents of the United Kingdom would be more trusting. Are we not missing some key historical step there? Uh, uh, and are we not oversimplifying the mechanisms through which trust is both created and destroyed? I think that um, uh, the, the point about, I would say the point about England <laughs> uh, and indeed uh, Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, but England in particular, which is where the bulk of the population is and where the poor laws were in existence for longest. England is more like um, Northern Italy in potentia, but of course no two places are identical in history. Um, in other words, England has plenty of 
cultural and social resources and memory uh, to uh, bring into play uh, trust-based um, activities and, uh, and, and relationships mm-hmm. uh, between governed and governing uh, individuals. Um, it's almost, uh, I think, in, you know, this is a historical judgment about how I as a historian see the, 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 the British people in history. I think it's actually more difficult in the British case to, to, to try to force force us into a non-trusting society. We are actually quite a rich trusting society, but we haven't been using an awful lot of it, uh, or we've been, or, in, or you could say we've been taking it for granted and running policies that, um, you know, sort of are all about certain sections of society building up their own personal wealth uh, and, and so on. Um, partly because we're quite a, you know, we have communities that can cope with this, uh, but they are being, you know, taken for granted a lot. And, and, to, and to get the best out of them, they need more resources. They need proper resources to be put in. We're, we're kind of, so we're kind of running along with communities, many in the North and the Midlands that are, that, that you know, it, it's a crying shame. They, they, they could do so much more with, more resources, but they're being forced onto their own, you know, uh, residual trusting uh, capacities. Wonderful. We, we have time to maybe a couple more questions from the audience. And um, let me let me take them uh, in turn. Following in the issue of trust, there's a question from Lynn Jackson, who is a long question, so I want to summarize it a little bit. Uh, Lin suggests that there are big differences between countries like Japan uh, and somebody else adds China, where mask wearing is very, very common. uh, And other countries like the UK, where mask uh, wearing is fairly rare, even compared to the US. I I, I travel to the US a lot. I'm always struck that in New York, everybody has uh, a mask on the street or or in the subway. That's not the case in, in London. Um, so what's um, what's at work here? Uh, is it that policy was different, say in Japan and China vis-a-vis the US or the UK? Or is it that, again, trust or cultural features may be at work? Um, I mean, the policy was different. I mean, that you know, it, it took a long time for, for the British government. I, I think they were initially saying there was no evidence that mask, mask wearing would make any difference. So that, you know, and, that, and that, of course that was just went hand in hand with with the the whole approach that that social distancing and restrictions was something that they wanted to get away from as quickly as possible you know this sort of drive to open everything up um ironically they could have opened up much more safely um had had they um been clearer and stronger about mask wearing and of course even now um, with with the recent um, relaxation of, of restrictions in the last couple of weeks, that has moved to you know lo- no longer mandating mask wearing. Well, I mean you know our cases are still incredibly high. I mean I know Omicron is a you know um, a, a less um, virulent uh, variant, or it may be because of vaccination that it's less 
um, dangerous. Right. But there's there was no, you know, we could have um, gone through the, this period now much more safely if we'd continued with mask wearing. But and, and of course, again, it's an agenda set from the top. Liz Truss tested positive for COVID this morning, and she was in the House of Commons yesterday without a mask, as has been pointed out on social media today. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of it is is about leadership and attitude um and that that's you know there's there's just not been a culture of pushing mask wearing whereas i mean of course the japanese as, as i think the question has said right. been wearing masks for a long time I, I mean i've been in japan and you 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 see um you know 10 years ago people were wearing masks if they had a throat infection or whatever mm. yeah i mean i would hope that mask wearing doesn't become a, a permanent feature of our society but on the on the on the other hand that whole razzmatazz about freedom day last summer was 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 just unjustified i mean i don't know what as i I'm, I'm sure future historians will want to have a close look at the at the um the communications and the and, and so on that government ministers and their advisors went into about you know why why they had to push freedom day so prematurely as you know rip all your masks off and, and and everything's fine i don't know just strange i could not agree more i think one can be very liberally minded but still be mindful of the fact that my freedom ends where the next person's freedom begins or yes you know, as, as as an american jurist said um my freedom to swing my fist ends where the other guy's nose begins. Um, you know, um, clearly, or in the jargon of economics, there's such clear externalities that you know freedom is a very misapplied yeah. and useless context in this in this regard. We have last one last uh, question uh, from the from the chat um, from Dr. Isabel Rosenstein, uh, PhD employee now retired. And she says, would you agree that true independence of public health expert advice during the pandemic would have improved response? She's implying that, that public expert advice was not truly independent, um, uh, i.e. Public Health England, now UK Health Security Agency, is an executive agency. Um, would, that, would that make a difference? Um, did it make a difference in other countries? Uh, what, what do we know about that? Was well, the advice biased precisely because the people giving the advice, in fact, reported to the government? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's a complicated issue, this one, that um, in the end, it would always have had to have been government that de determined actual policy. So I think what the questioner is asking is, would there have been a difference if the public health advisory people had been formally outside government, not standing next to the prime minister, issuing their own statements, and then the government either having to <laughs> presumably reject them or, or to say why they, you know, and, and I, suspect, I suspect we can assume that this government would have made arguments about the importance of the economy and so on, and, and probably would have pursued quite a similar line anyway. We did, of course, have independent SAGE, which I thought was an interesting and quite important development, rather typical of the kind of strong civic society tradition that we have in this country, that um, an ex-government uh, chief scientific officer uh, 
Sir David King formed a group of experts around him and was quite active in issuing um, regular updates sort of almost in parallel with the sage itself. And his argument was precisely that, you know, there should be a, a second opinion, if you like, at, at the least, on what, what government was, you know, there was this problem that government was forming its expert advice and then government was choosing to tell us what the expert advice had told them. And I think that is that is a problem and that's why independent sage was so important. Um, uh, so I think that the, the questioner is certainly right in the sense that, um, you know, there was, there is a problem if, if the public health advice is not perceived to be and is not in fact independent, uh, then, then there can be quite serious problems. Quite, quite ironic because, of course, this country, and particularly a conservative government, would want to argue that, oh, well, we're not at all like China or anything like that. You know, we, mm. we don't tell people what to do, but, but the, this way of, of bringing the uh, scientific advice within government is, is mm. interesting. It's uh, a little bit like that. No, I think, Simon, you're absolutely right. There's a difference between advice and decision making. Ultimately, the responsibility for making choices rests with policymakers who are going to be politicians, but they better base their choices on independent advice. Um, and one can imagine many, you know, I, I run a school of public policy. There's a lot of evidence of different ways across the world of organizing such agencies so that they're more or less independent, whether in the realm of public health and the realm of financial regulation, uh, the court system, uh, and so many others where you do need autonomy from the political cycle to be able to gather first and then dispense the right kind of information and advice. As a matter of interest, um, do, do you, is there a particular country or set of countries that you think does get this right that establishes its independent advice giving in a, in a particularly effective way? That's a very good question for which I'm not sure I have a very good answer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an economist, so I could probably answer that question when it comes to, say, financial regulators or central banks. Um, New Zealand, for instance, is well known across the world as a country that seems to have structured that quite well. Uh, you have very capable professionals who are accountable to the political masters, but who uh, also have autonomy uh, from, from the political cycle. That's true in, in, in central banking and in finance. What is the country that does it right when it comes to health advice? I honestly have no idea. Maybe, maybe you do, or maybe somebody in the in the audience does. While we think about it, um, I am uh, I'm going to uh, turn to what ought to be, I think, the last question. I'm not seeing any more in the chat. Uh, going back to China again, um, you know, you, you you mentioned some challenges and problems that UK um, met at the start of the pandemic because you know of budget cuts and lack of resources. But then the question points out other countries uh, turn around and simply deploy more money and you know solve questions quickly. You know, China built more hospitals. Not sure you can build a hospital in a year, but suppose they built more clinics or something uh, that uh, that could be used. Um, so I suppose the question is: Was it only money in the UK, or was it simply, or what, you know, in addition to resource issues, was there some um, some particular administrative uh, failure, lack of speed, lack of agility that hindered the UK's response? 
I think they were terrible. I mean, building hospitals, do you remember? We built all those Nightingale hospitals. Right. They <laughs> seem to never get used. Mm. Uh, that, you know, I mean, it's a government that's got great connections into the, into the construction and building industry and can get things done. But they had deliberately cut themselves off from public health and local government. They don't, you know, it's a government that doesn't believe in public services. So they didn't particularly, you know, have a, a communication line. And they'd also, you know, starve them of resources. Um, so, yeah, there were, I think there were, there were terrible problems of that kind in, in Britain, which which didn't exist in other countries like perhaps China, not necessarily because China might be more authoritarian, but just because China, you know, believes in um, devoting resources to this kind of thing more. So it was in communication with its public health and infectious disease. It doesn't mean that because you have um, a disease surveillance system that, you know, that is effective, that you have to be an authoritarian regime. I mean, this is just something that, you know, I mean, now that we have global international trade, it's, you know, as Hillary said earlier with the, you know, the red risk register was a pandemic top, top priority because it's very well known that if you've got global in-depth deep trade, you've got global in-depth deep exchange of microbes going on all the time. And you need to have any, any society that's, can afford it, uh, which is all the OECD countries, you need to have an effective disease surveillance system in place because uh, otherwise you're, you're foolish. Um, and unfortunately, the, you know, the, the tragedy is that Britain pioneered this in the 1880s and 90s. A very good colleague of mine wrote a fantastic book called Intrusive Interventions about the origins of the, of the Notification of Infectious Diseases Acts. The Notification of Infectious Diseases Act in the late 19th century was all about the state mandating privately employed doctors to have to give information to the local medical officer of health, the, the, the in charge of the public health of the city or the region, about when they were treating people with a whole, with five different kinds of infectious diseases. And then, you know, they were taken to isolation hospitals and fever hospitals that the local authority built. We, we developed all this in the 1890s and 1900s. And now this, you know, I don't know, kind of short-sighted government just underfunded it so badly that it couldn't respond. I think the comparison between China and the UK, of course, it's hard to draw a proper comparison because the two societies are so, so different. But while you were speaking, Simon, I did look up size of government as a share of GDP. Mm. Uh, China was much more effective, even though China's government is much smaller. Mm. Uh, if I look at the share of, of, of spending and output, right before the pandemic, it was nearly 40% in the UK. It was around 31, 32% for China. So yeah. with, with, with a government that is a third smaller in China, performance was better. So I guess that makes two points. Uh, efficiency and administration matter. And secondly, resources are not everything. Um, yeah, which, although you, which you is know, something you that have, is worth keeping in mind. You have to remember that in Britain, we've been <laughs> building up our public uh, infrastructure for 400 years or, or more. I mean, China is, of course, an ancient civilization, but I think yeah. this kind of um, 
stuff that we're talking about is is a newer investment for them. Although the, if, if we're talking about the history of civil service, this is one area where China is probably more ancient than the <laughs> ideas, of course, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that you have competitive entrance examinations to the civil service, whatever, that was done in Beijing long before it was done in Westminster, I think. Yeah, the Mandarin. The Mandarin exactly. Wonderful. Well, I think we're coming to uh, um, the end of a fascinating discussion. Um, we have a minute left. I don't know if Simon or Hillary have any parting thoughts that we want to share with the audience before we say our goodbyes. Well, just that we do hope the purpose of writing this book was to, um, you know, stimulate discussion and debate. And we're very thankful to everybody who has turned up to hear and also to throw questions at us and thanks also very much to Andres for his questions which were you know excellent really challenging but you know what we really hope is that um, people will uh, take forward the, the ideas in the particularly in the final chapter of the book and um, you know we do need to change the way we are doing things in this country and many other parts of the world and we need big changes. And that's the seven, what the seven pillars in the last chapter of the book is all about. Yeah, go along with that. Thank you. Well, for people wishing to look at the seven pillars uh, on the printed page, let me remind our audience that you can get the book after the virus, Lessons from the Past for a Better Future, uh, from our official LSE Events Independent Bookshop, Pages of Hackney. And you can find a link to, um, to the bookshop in the chat. So, Hilary, Simon, thank you very, very much. Great pleasure. Um, thank you for today's discussion. Thank you, um, of course, to our two guests, but also to everybody in the audience for joining us today. That is it for today. And, uh, of course, I look forward to welcome you all to another School of Public Policy at the LSE event, another book launch or another discussion of public policy issues. See you all soon. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE events podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.